So tolerance and limiting factors. Tolerance is how long you can stand something, how long something can withstand something, right? Limiting factors are what holds something back, right? Some of these relate to us. And I'll use some of those connections. Okay, so here is your range of tolerance. And I want you guys to understand this, right? I want you to understand that the range of tolerance is different for every single thing. Even within a species, the range of tolerance is different, right? For different people, the range of tolerance is different, right? So, but there is always an optimal range, okay? So then once you get out of, like, if you look to the right and to the left, you, you find, like, your, what they call zone of stress. So that means that it's uncomfortable, okay? Then you have your zone of intolerance where basically it's past stress, like, can't do it. A good example of this would be, or a great example of this would be, to connect it to us, is temperature, right? The temperature can be too hot and it can be too cold. But let's say, like, to have a best representation of this, let's say you're in jeans and a t-shirt, right? You're outside in jeans and a t-shirt. There is a temperature where it becomes stressful because it's too hot, right? Let's say 100, from 100 degrees to 120 degrees. It, that is your zone of stress. Can you be outside at that time? Yes. Is it uncomfortable? Yes. Okay? And if you notice, like, our population or abundance of species or species richness um, would decline as you get closer or farther to that zone of stress. So there is a, what you'd call like a Goldilocks zone, if you remember that, uh, that story, right? So there is that zone where it's just right. Um, but once it gets past 120, you have your zone of intolerance, right? And, you know, maybe, maybe 130, maybe 140, right? Your time where it's like nobody's going outside, okay? Same thing with too cold. You have your zone of stress, okay? And once again, this is different for everybody. That's why you see that number of, of animals, of ants, shrink, right? Because it's different. Some people like the cold, right? So some people might be more okay with that stress, but let's say our zone of stress would be between the temperatures of 30 and 10 degrees, okay? Or 20 and zero, whatever, right? The, the, the exact numbers don't matter, but it's a zone of stress. So that's when it's uncomfortably cold. You're in jeans and a t-shirt, so it's uncomfortable. Your zone of intolerance would be below zero, okay? At that point, nobody's outside in jeans and a t-shirt. It's too cold. So that's what we're talking about here. That's like this whole, this whole point here. So quickly, we're going to talk about some limiting factors, okay? So here are some things that limit or create that stress. Like, so if you're talking about that stress, things create that stress. So having too much or too little of something creates that stress. Those are limiting factors, okay? The, uh, we'll come back to this picture of the fish with no air versus air. So I'll reference that again later. So here are some important limiting factors. So if you're talking about soil as a thing, because soil is a very, 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 very important thing. All right? Plants need soil. Let's, so we're using plants as an example. For these plants, whether it's um, a natural environment or whether it is a man-made crop, they need that soil to grow. Okay? 
So some of the limiting factors might be nitrogen. Nitrogen is one of the main things that plants need, okay? Uh, most fertilizers have a large amount of nitrogen. But they do have two other things that we don't think of as much, phosphorus and potassium. So if you have too much of those, it can be bad. If you have too little, it can be bad, right? And then you have those zones like right next to that where it's your stress. And then you, for depending on the plant, you have your Goldilocks zone where it is ideal, okay? Um, so that's what we're talking about here. But I'm just using some of these examples to point out that it depends on your organism, plant, animal, bug, insect, what plant, what animal, what insect depends on what the limiting factor is going to be. Okay. Cause some plants like a lot of nitrogen, some plants don't like as much nutrients. Okay. So it depends. Another example would be the open ocean. Okay. So we're talking about like, the, think of like the middle of the Pacific ocean where it's thousands of feet deep. That's what we're talking about, okay? Nitrogen is another thing. And we won't so much talk about the why. We're just using examples here. Um, silica or, or iron. Once again, we're not going to dive so deep into the why. And that's a great pun there. We're not going to dive so deep into why those are important here in the open ocean. Um, dissolved oxygen. So oxygen molecules within the water, okay? So you'll see that typically as DO, so dissolved oxygen which that'll come up again when we talk about water. So those were examples of, uh, of limiting factors. So freshwater lakes and rivers, phosphorus is one, but there, I mean, there's several others, right? So I'm only sharing some examples. Dissolved oxygen, once again, would pop up a lot here. Um, nitrogen would as well. So a lot of the same things would pop up here. We're just sharing some examples here, okay? This one is a is a very common one. So bays, estuaries, really the ocean in general. Um, but here, it, this is your typical limiting factor because you get a lot of at bay, with bays and estuaries. Like just so you guys know, if you're confused at what's a bay, what's an estuary, the bay would be the right side of the picture. The estuary would be the left. So the estuary would is typically more inland. The bay is you're transitioning to the open ocean. Okay. Uh, so salinity, because the salinity does change seasonally or with tides or, um, with other factors. So it does change. So based on how salty it is, um, or how alkaline it is, you're going to get different organisms that live there. So, because you have different limiting factors. Okay. So now Let's talk about these. So I want to hear from you guys. What do you guys think are the limiting factors with these images? So you have three images here. Your first image is the fish tank one that we saw is a fish. And on the left, it has um, air bubbles. So it has like some sort of a, uh, oh, what are they called? Like an air stone. I forget what they're called. Uh, where it's releasing oxygen into the water. Um, and then on the right, you don't have the air bubbles. So that's the fish tank example. Then the next picture is desert plants. So it's a desert landscape. I believe that's um, Arches National Monument. Then the last one is the bottom of a rainforest that shows a bunch of ferns in a large green area. So what do you guys think the limiting factor would be? So let me hear some responses. Let's talk about the fish tank one first. 
What do you guys think the limiting factors might be for the fish tank? Okay, so with the fish tank, the, yeah, so we had space, air, cleanliness, dissolved oxygen, oxygen. So the best example there, because it's showing that you remove the oxygen. So if you guys didn't know, like we think of fish sometimes as almost alien, right? Fish actually breathe the same stuff as us. They're just able to get it from the water because there's oxygen in water. So depending on the fish, certain fish need more oxygen in the water than others, right? Just like some humans, like there are humans, there's Sherpas in the Himalayas that can, that can live very well at high altitudes because they require less oxygen for their bodies, right? So just like that, certain fish need more oxygen in the water. So you can see that that fish, the limiting factor was the dissolved oxygen. You remove the dissolved oxygen, that becomes a stressor. Eventually the fish becomes intolerant, it dies, okay? So that is your limiting, um, limiting factor, okay? So for the desert area, some of the responses we got were uh, water, let's go with water and temperature. Those to me are great responses, okay? Because we generally know most deserts do not get much water or do not retain much water. Okay, so for a lot of plants, like if you look at uh, rainforest plants, a lot of rainforest plants need a lot of water. Okay, so obviously you can't take a fern and go plant it in uh, the Sahara Desert. Why? Because it needs more water than is available. So that would be a great limiting factor. Another limiting factor that we said was temperature. Yes, okay, certain plants uh, can't, can't withstand that much heat or that much cold sometimes in desert, right? Sometimes the temperature swing is too much. Another thing that was not mentioned for desert that I would say is sunlight, okay? Plants can get too much sunlight and it can scorch the plant. So that's another thing. Too much of something is a limiting factor. Rainforest, for the rainforest picture, you can see that it is a little bit darker. So we did say that sunlight was the limiting factor, 100%. Those ferns that you see there in the picture actually do not grow well in too much sunlight. And they don't grow well in sunlight at all. So if you took those ferns and you planted them in the desert, they wouldn't last at all. Okay? So a lot of times sunlight is the limiting factor. So you can't just take a plant that requires a lot of sunlight. So like vice versa, you can't take one of those desert plants that you see in the picture and go plant it in the bottom of the rainforest and expect just because it gets all this... Um, the soil is very nutritious, the temperature is great, like all these things are great, that that plant's going to do well. No, it needs a lot of sunlight because it's from the desert, right? So different things have different limiting factors. So, great. So, here, so here's an interesting thing. So I'm going to read this and then I'm going to talk about it a little bit because we're really going to talk about this a lot. This image is showing something called cultural eutrophication. So here's what, here's what it says here on the left. It says, if a limiting factor um, or a limiting nutrient is the only thing holding back on an al algal bloom or an algae bloom, what happens when a lot of it is added at once? So what it's saying is this. Okay, so algae is a, algae is a plant, okay? So algae needs the same things that we would give to a crop. Right? So if you're growing corn, the same stuff that would help corn grow would help algae grow. So if you don't have that stuff in water, 
the algae isn't as ready to bloom, ready, like ready to, to cover as large of an area as you see in the picture. So then what happens is if in certain times of year you get a large runoff, like you use fertilizer at the wrong time, like let's say one of you has the job of fertilizing your front lawn. You choose to do that on a day in the winter. And so you do that, uh, you get a lot of runoff. That runoff goes to a pond at the end of your road. That pond is full of water. Guess what? Not only did you just fertilize that water, so it makes it potentially toxic, but also you fertilize the algae. So a lot of times you will get an algae because you've added too much of a good thing. Okay, so the limiting factor can sometimes be too much of a good thing because you've removed the negative and added way too much of a positive. Make sense? Okay, so now our next section, we are talking about natural dis disturbances, okay, or disruptions to ecosystems. So this one is a great one to talk about now. I don't think there is a better time to talk about this subject for us than right now. You'll see why in a second. Okay, let's answer this question. So I want to know from you guys, what are some natural disturbances that could impact an ecosystem? Go ahead and answer now. Okay. So, okay, so you guys shared some great examples. We talked about fire, flood. I'm, I'm going to see if I remember all of them that you guys just said. Fire, flood, volcano. I will keep, Alan, I will keep radiation, but radiation, let's think like sunlight, right? That's radiation. So sunlight could potentially be a disturbance. Um, I don't remember the other ones, but let's go with those. Okay, so... That's what we're talking about here. There's two ways that we deal with any disturbance, okay? And please, please, please feel free to relate this to yourself, right? Because people are more of one of these two things and animals are more of one of these or nature is more of one of these two things, right? So we're going to talk about two words, resistance and resilience, okay? Okay. Like when one of you guys deals with a problem, you deal with it one of these two ways. You are either resistant to the problem or you're resilient. You bounce back, right? Maybe some of you guys are the type where like you never, you like hardly ever get emotional, right? No matter what, like a boy breaks up with you, um, something happens, like whatever happens, whatever happens, you never get, like you hardly ever get emotional, um, but we'll talk about a downfall of that. Then some of you guys have the personality where like somebody didn't wave to you that day and you get super emotional. Like, you know, like there's a difference, right? But you bounce back. If maybe you're that person where every single day you cry, but you are happy a little bit later, right? So we're going to use both those as our examples. So with nature, it's the same way. So resistance is... The ability to remain unchanged when being subjected to disturbance. So it'd be like this, right? So we have these, we have several of these uh, really famous, really massive trees in the Sierra Nevada, right? We have these sequoias, huge trees. We have these redwoods, massive trees, right? They live for hundreds and, and maybe thousands of years. They live a really long time. And there's been fires 
basically since Earth had stuff that could burn, there's been fires on Earth, right? So plants had to develop a way to deal with that. Some of these plants, like two of them that I just named, have developed a resistance, okay? By that, I mean that they almost have like a protective armor, right? They Like they don't, like maybe you'll see that the side of them gets charred, but like sequoias are a great example. Redwoods are the same way. It might be like 50 or 100 feet before you see a true branch. So what are you actually going to burn? You're going to burn like the thickest part of the tree. And the tree is maybe like literally I'm looking at my classroom here. It's maybe as thick as my classroom, right? Think about it. Like 10, 15, 20, 30 yards thick. That's a, that's a really wide tree. So you're going to burn that thing. You're hardly like that fire is not going to make an impact. Okay. At least depending on the fire, not going to make an impact. So that is resistance. There, like it's going to be hard to, uh, to truly bring that tree down. Like think of, think of like a military Abrams tank, right? Those things are thick. Like you're going to have to do a lot to really impact that thing. Okay. So that's one way that nature deals with these natural disturbances. Okay. And we're, and we're using, we're taking that example of fire. Okay. Because that's the most common example. That's one that right now, because there's so many fires going on in California, we can really relate to. Okay. And so I'm even going to present this to you guys. And I'm going to use this for the next five minutes. I'm going to use this example. Think about the difference between like a fire that's going on. Like there's that Sacramento fire north of Sacramento. I forget the name of it. Uh, but there's a fire going on up there right now. And that fire is burning like what you kind of see in this picture here, where more like evergreen trees and more of what you think of with a true forest. Then there's the fire that we were just impacted by, where it's still why we have bad air. It was dropping ash on us, all this, you know, all this bad stuff. And it burned a lot, but it burned grass, basically. I mean, there are, you know, probably a few hundred oak and smaller, you know, like smaller things like that. But most of what it burned was grass. Okay. So you're looking at different things there. So I'm going to use those as an example when I talk about resistance and resilience. So let's talk a little bit more about resilience. So resistance, I've already defined it. But now what's this one? Resilience. Okay. Resilience is the opposite. So if I said resistance is that person that takes a lot to cry, right? If it's like, I'm, you know, I'm using you guys as an example, right? So it takes a lot for you to get emotional, okay? So then resilience is that person that's get you know, gets emotional pretty easy, right? They watch the Lorax and they, they cry when the animals leave, okay? When they cut down the first tree, they, they cried. You know, maybe that's some of you guys, but, you know, then they play a song in the Lorax at the end, let it grow and you're happy again, right? That's resilience, okay? Resilience is the ability and rate of an ecosystem to recover from a disturbance and return to its predisturbed state. So its ability to bounce back to where it was. That's resilience, okay? So those are the two different ways that nature recovers. All, here we're talking about recovery, okay? That's what we're looking at here. Okay. I'm going to do my best with this graphic here. And this will be the deciding year of if I keep this graphic or if I get rid of it. Why? Because man, oh man, is there so much going on with this graphic. Okay, but let me explain it this way. Because this graphic is mainly looking at 
no, not mainly. This graphic is looking at resilience. Okay. I do want to point this out though. You're really, don't think of this as your typical graph or typically your um, X axis left to right. You're looking at time. No, 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 no. Ignore that. Okay. What you're looking at mainly follow this black line, right? This black line is showing you what's happening with the resilience. Okay. So there's some sort of a disturbance which is impacting the ecosystem. And then due to that resilience, it's uh, stuff's recovering, okay? Uh, then, like, throughout that process, you get different rates of recovery, is what I'll say. This is the key thing that I want to point out with this, right? is don't think of resilience 100% only as a positive thing, okay? Yes, it is a process for an ecosystem to bounce back, but think about it this way. If you go to the forest and you burn an area, completely scorch it to the ground, do you think that the first plants to bounce back and the first plants to grow are necessarily the most beneficial or the best? That's what this is showing. So if you look in the middle, it says unhelpful resilience. So a lot of times at first, what you get is not necessarily the best plants bouncing back, the best plants growing, the best plants covering the whole area. It's not necessarily them that are growing first. So it's sometimes considered unhelpful. Okay. Then after a period of time, you get more of a balance and you start to get more helpful. So like that's why you... Uh, middle right, you start to see a little bit of an increase in some of the helpful uh, resilience. So you're getting better plants that are popping up. So you're getting like maybe smaller shrubs, things like that that are more beneficial to the ecosystem. Okay. And then once we get down here, then we start to get, you see this blue line, that is the recovery. Okay. Then eventually it gets back to the start. So like, that's why it's like a gradual, gradual undulating decline. And then it follows a very similar process on the way back. Okay. That's my best way of, of showing this graphic. I think I made it simple enough. I don't want to talk about it anymore because I think it's too, I think it's got too much going on, but I do feel obligated to show graphics for this class because much of this class is you interpreting data with environmental science. Much of the data that is interpreted to you is through graphics, visuals, graphs, tables, things like this. So I feel I do have to show them. Okay. Um, so there you go. So let's take a look at another one, much more simple here, but this, I'm going to go, I'm going back to the analogy guys, the analogy of you. So here's the analogy of you, right? I said, there's a difference of people, right? There's people that it takes a lot to break down emotionally. There's people where it's like, I'm telling you, like, every day, once a week, something like, okay? Uh, and so the ecosystem, it, like, we're connection, connecting that to the ecosystem, but consider this, right? And maybe you guys have seen this, where you know somebody that never breaks down emotionally, you know, like, hardly ever cries, but then once they finally do, it's like game over. Like, that person is wrecked for, like, a month. Right? Maybe you've seen that. Like, oh, this person never shows emotion. They're the quiet person. They never talk. They never, like, they don't ever seem happy. They don't seem sad. Are they a robot? And then something happens, and that person is just, like, devastated for a month. 
Okay, so that would be comparable to some of these plants. So, and later on throughout the year, we learn more of why that specifically is that some of these resistant organisms struggle. But I'll use the example of like, say, like, like, the, like these sequoias, right? Massive trees, really big, very resistant to fire, right? Fire for them is some, somewhat of a good thing. Uh, but they don't grow too fast. They don't uh, like throw off a lot of seeds like some of these smaller grasses and shrubs. It takes them a long time to get big. So if there is a big enough fire to wipe out, say for 100,000 acres, to wipe out all of these sequoias or redwoods or some of these more massive plants, if there's a fire big enough to wipe those out, or say like that fire north of Sacramento, if it wipes out a lot of these evergreens that take a little bit longer to grow, think about it, they're more resistant to fire, but once the fire is big enough to wipe them out, how quick are they going to recover? I bet you some of these fires that, are, that happen up in the mountains, if you go there in 10 years, tw maybe 20 years, maybe 30 years, you can clearly see evidence of a fire. I guarantee it. You will still be able to clearly see evidence of a fire. But now let's use resilience. Resilience, able to bounce back, right? You get emotional, then, but you recover the next day. Okay, so you're a different person. You show emotion a lot, but you bounce back. Um, some of these organisms are the same way. So let's use the SCU complex east, uh, sorry, 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 west of us. So most, mostly grass is burning. I guarantee you go to that area, huge fire. One of the, like, I think it's like the second or third, I think it's third largest fire in the history of California. I guarantee if you go to it in a, in two years, maybe three, I guarantee you, you will hardly know it was there. Why? Because those plants are resilient. Difference, okay? Different things, right? There's benefits to both. Those grasses, how long does it take a grass to come back? How long does it take an evergreen tree to come back? You know what I mean? Like, so difference. There is a huge difference, okay? We have to understand that. Okay. So now ch check out this graph. And then we're going to do a little bit of a discussion. So species diversity is your y-axis. So follow this line here, right? So you, what you see on this graph, and this graph is a pretty famous graph. So it's the intermediate disturbance hypothesis graph. You'll see it a lot, right? I, I would be willing to bet it's, it'll probably be on the AP test. Be willing to bet it's there. Very common. So here's what it's showing. Species diversity is your y-axis. As you go up on the y-axis, you have more diversity. As you go down on the y-axis, you have less diversity. And remember, I, I know this to most of you sounds obvious. Biodiversity, the more, the better. Okay? So, let's talk about our x-axis or the bottom. The bottom has three different variables that it's showing. It has your like how frequent your disturbance is, okay? So if we're using, if we're still using the example of fires, it's how often are you having fires, okay? The left would be like, there's, everything's always on fire. The right would be like, you're having a fire every 50, 100 years, 1,000 years, right? They, the right is a very big gap. Depends on the disturbance. 
The second one is uh, is time, right? So, like I said, most graphs, most graphs, it's gonna be there's gonna be time showed on them. So the bottom, yes, left, soon, right, far, piece of cake. Disturbance on the left is a large disturbance. On the right is a small disturbance. So here's what it's showing, right? Because we think of, and this, like, and this was a very, like, this is why I said about 50 years ago, fires were very controversial. Because what we did was we said every single, and like things were easier to manage back then, right? But we thought all fires were bad. We we're like, no matter what, fires are bad. We have to put out all fires. So no matter what, we would put out all fires. And then what we noticed is, it was hurting some plants. Some plants need fire. It doesn't seem like it, but some plants, mainly some of these more resistant plants, redwoods, sequoias, uh, valley oak, live oak, some of these ones need the fire. So what we did was we started allowing controlled burns, okay? Because they need that disturbance. And here's why. Like you guys might still not be able to see based on the graph what I'm, what I'm getting at here. But if you look, I, we clearly said this. We know this. Biodiversity, the more the better. You're, the most of your biodiversity, where we have the greatest biodiversity, is in the middle. So it's showing you, right? If I, like all the way on the right of this graph would mean... I have very small disturbances very infrequently, okay? So I almost never have any disturbance, but when I do, it's a really, really, really tiny one, okay? That's what this is showing you. And so how does my biodiversity look? Not great, not great, okay? On the left, same thing. If I have really huge disturbances all the time, my biodiversity isn't great. So what we need is something in the middle. We need fire. We do, 100%. It's why we have controlled burns. But right now we're having them too frequently. So right now if you look with our fire, with, our, with the amount of fires we're having currently in California as of 2020, we are having them too frequently. So we're moving our biodiversity right now is decreasing because of the amount of fires, Okay because it is becoming too stressful. That's what this is showing you, okay? Hopefully that graph makes sense. But let's use a couple examples, okay? So here you have an example of something other than a fire. So you're, you're, you're seeing an intertidal zone, okay? The disturbance would be the tide, right? The tide going in and out. You're getting water, you're not getting water. You're getting water, you're not getting water. You're getting water, you're not getting water, okay? So that, I mean, that's creating stress. But certain organisms have developed the ability to live within that, okay? But what you notice is it completely changes the ecosystem if you make the tide change too frequently. Because maybe, like, I don't believe you get a tide change more than two times a day. I don't think so. Maybe sometimes three. But I know it's not more than three. Okay, but if you had a tide change, say like, uh, you know, a place like Monterey, if you had a tide change like eight times a day, 
that's going to be too much for some of these animals, right? If you had a tide change too infrequently, then you've completely changed the ecosystem. They're just in the water, right? But some of these crabs, some of these, uh, uh, some of these other organisms, I'm blanking on uh, intertidal organisms, but some of these organisms that live in these places, they thrive on the, and their biodiversity here is great because it's not too little of a disturbance, not too much of a disturbance. That's why this is a great example. So, but let's see if some of these are good or bad. Okay, so we're going to look at frequency and, and intensity here. I want to discuss these, okay? Let's have a quick chat as a class. Can ecosystems, like, so let's talk about this first one first. Can ecosystems recover from intense, infrequent disturbance? So it can, is that something that they can ever potentially recover from? Is that like, can you recover from a disturbance that is intense and infrequent? Okay, and then we'll talk about the, the next one after that. So with the first one that we're talking about, can ecosystems recover from intense, infrequent disturbance? So for using that example of Stanislaus National Forest, 200,000 acres burn, but I get, but like I somehow give the guarantee that there will not be another fire in that area for 100 years. So that was pretty infrequent. That is an ecosystem that will 100% recover in that amount of time. And actually, that is beneficial. Okay, that is, that is actually, I don't know about the, the, the scale and the intensity, but... Uh, that is actually a beneficial thing that does typically happen naturally in ecosystems. That is how they have evolved to work with fire. Because you might be wondering, well, why, Campbell? I always think of fire as bad. The more frequent the fire, the worse it is, yes. But think about it this way. Some of these trees, right, they drop their, I'm like, here, look, let me just let me let me talk to you a little bit about pine trees because there might be some stuff that you don't know. I wish we were at my classroom and I wish I could show you the trees right outside my classroom because there's something interesting to notice about pine trees. Pine trees, the needles are of pine trees are very, 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 very acidic. So check this out. The next time you go look at a pine tree, stand under it and tell me how many grasses, weeds, plants you see under directly under the canopy. I bet you it'll be very little. You get away from the canopy, and what do you see? You see grasses, weeds, and plants. Because he, uh, these evergreens do something really, really cool. They drop their needles, and their needles are so acidic that literally they're making it difficult for anything to grow there. I wonder why. Well, the reason why, I'll tell you, is because their seeds need some room to grow. They need that room to grow, Right? So if there's a bunch of grass and weeds and stuff underneath them, it's going to make it more challenging. So if you have some of these areas where you have a lot of undergrowth, where it is some of these plants that, hey, even though uh, the ground is so acidic, I can still grow there. It's going to make it very challenging for you to get a lot of these saplings from these evergreens, right? So then what will happen is naturally, this is a natural thing. You get a natural fire that occurs, right? A rock falls, um, sparks of fire, fire starts, right? Say that this was 10,000 years ago, okay? So we didn't cause it, but a fire happened. Uh, so this fire starts, and it burns all of the undergrowth. It burns all the shrubs, the grasses, everything, 
Guess what that allows? Within the year, saplings from some of these evergreens will grow and you will get a major growth of trees. So it's a natural thing that does happen, which is good. Um, if, if it is infrequent, okay? So now let's talk about the next one. Can, a, can an ecosystem recover from frequent mild disturbances? Okay, so it's not as intense. So it's not a huge fire, but we've decreased our timeline. It's happening more often. So what do we think? So let me use this connection here with if an ecosystem can recover from frequent but mild disturbances. Okay, think about how long... Like, hopefully you guys have seen, like, a big pine tree, right? A big evergreen. Hopefully you guys have seen one that's 100 feet tall. But think about how long it takes for that tree to get that tall. Maybe, let's, I don't know, like, and it's different for every tree, right? But, but it changed. But let's say, let's just use a nice, easy number. Let's say it's somewhere in the ballpark of, like, a foot a year, Okay. I'm probably completely wrong, but just for a nice, easy number, and I don't think that's actually, I don't think it's that far off. Let's use that as a reference. So if our frequent, our frequency, let's say an area, small area, just 50,000 acres, okay, has a fire every five to 10 years, it doesn't take much fire to completely destroy a tree that is five to 10 feet tall. Because remember, right after that fire, it's really good for the tree. That means, the, that means this tree that's 100 feet tall is not gonna get burned down, but it is going to drop seeds that are going to help saplings grow. But those saplings, they have five to 10 years until that next fire hits. So you're never going to get new growth. Eventually you will not get new growth if you have too frequent of fires. If you're having fires every five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years in the same area, even if it's a small fire, you will not get growth of those resilient uh, or resistant, sorry. You will not get growth of those resistant organisms. These massive trees, these big trees is mainly what we're talking about. These shrubs and grasses that are resilient, oh, they'll be back. Right, because how long does it take? Like, if you're talking about uh, uh, salt, salt brush, right? So, you know, like sagebrush, sagebrush, like a big sagebrush. How long does that take that thing to grow? Like, maybe two years, and it's as big as it's possibly going to get, right? So, it doesn't take much. So, they're gonna the resilient plants are gonna come back. So, what you've done, and here's why your biodiversity decreases, and then we'll and then we'll finish this thing up. Your biodiversity decreases. Because you've completely wiped out your resistant organisms at a certain point. If it's too frequent or too intense, you will decrease your biodiversity because, because you remove the resistant organisms. You only then have the resilient organisms. Okay? So hopefully all of that makes sense. Let me know if you have any questions.